New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Mendrinos. And today's episode is a fun one for me. We're bringing in Sean Lynch. I've known Sean for over 25 years. He started in the New York City area. Um, we've written for a lot of the same companies. He's a comedian, a voiceover artist, an actor, and a writer, writing in television and also for feature films. We're going to talk to him about the processes on each of these types of writing. We're also going to talk to him a lot about voiceover work. So this is a fun and informative podcast. So sit back, enjoy, and help me welcome Mr. Sean Lynch. Hey, everybody. We are here with Sean Lynch on the Comedy Legacy Podcast. And Sean has been doing stand-up for 109 years now. 109 about. It's yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's going on uh, just about 27 years. Yeah. Now. Crazy. Just to just to get things started, so that we're just starting with an easy question. What do you wish you would have known then about stand-up comedy that you know now? Not the business, but the actual art form. Uh, that it's especially in the in the first ten years that it's more about listening than anything else. Okay, now when it's you're the talking, biggest thing you, go ahead. The biggest thing you can do, I find, is 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 watch the other comic sets and listen to the audience. I wish I, I wish I had focused on that. All right, when did you learn that? When did you pick that up? Because for me, it was very clear. I I had done a, a weekend with Bill Hicks. And I killed on a show that my opinion was I did better than he did following me. And then afterwards in the condo, we're eating cereal. And he's like, do you want to know what you did wrong? And that was a turning <laughs> moment for me. Because I'm there like, yeah, tell me what I did wrong. You know, and that's where I learned to listen. Do you remember where you learned to listen? Um, I'd say the summer of uh, the summer of 96, I was working as an MC at uh, New York Comedy Club, uh, and I, I, I realized sort of at random that uh, when I sat in the back and I watched every single comic set in between hosting and was able to make a reference to some joke they made, it changed the, the audience's a perception of me as an MC, but it also kept this like flow of energy going and it made it even if it wasn't true it gave the illusion that all of us were friends and all of us knew each other's bits and it just i don't know it it it, it changed i realized it was so much more about the relationship you had with the audience was that was just as important as whatever bits you had been working on that week great so let me ask you this you started stand up in you said 27 years ago so 93-ish yep. about, um, what made you want to start? Summer of 90, yeah, summer of 90, I guess technically summer of 92 at the, uh, the Village Gate. Mm -hmm. What made you want to start? Um, you know, I, I, was, I, was a, I was a playwriting student in NYU and I loved writing jokes, I loved writing comedy and uh, a couple of other students at NYU at the time, we're doing stand-up among them with that. John Fugelsang, Jordan Rubin, Judah Friedlander, and uh, I'd come to see them at a couple of shows, and I thought, man, I, I, 
I want to give that a shot. All right. So you had already been learning how to write in playwriting courses um, in yeah. probably one of the, the best places in the world to learn playwriting. So, yeah. Yeah. So what were you able to take from your other disciplines into stand up and what did you have to leave totally behind? Uh, well, I had to, I had to leave my ego completely behind. I had to kind of, I, I, I had to be ready to fail. Um, I, I think letting go of that was, it was a big lesson. The, the biggest thing in, um, you know, because my, my style of, of comedy has always been more of a storytelling comedy. Um, just learning how to uh, get to the beats faster, even if it didn't seem natural. You know, I, I was really way more married to the stories in the beginning, and that would hurt the storytelling. Whereas when I learned to break the story down into beats and punches, it gave the audience windows to laugh, to listen, to... I mean, that took a while to figure out. Yeah, you'd be telling some story that you thought was hilarious, and you couldn't believe that the moments that you wanted to laugh was not where the audience laughed. Mm. So you and I both are uh, storytellers when we're on stage. Um, and oh, yeah. we, we have slightly separate styles and I think that you're a little bit more aggressive in your storytelling. You like to stay on top of the audience where I'm a lot more laid back and like come, whoever wants to be on this ride can come. Right. <laughs> Why? For you, and I know for me, I developed this way because if I didn't, I'd be angry all the time on stage. How much of your personality impacted how you perform, which then impacted how you wrote? Well, one thing, I mean, this, this, this took me a couple of years to kind of get to, but one thing I realized was if the characters and the voices of the characters, because a lot of the, a lot of my comedy a lot of career has come out of doing character voices and stuff like that um either for commercials or video games or that sort of thing but it came out of if the if the voices for the characters in the story were crazy then the voice of the narrator had to be really calm and like garrison keeler like to juxtapose against the characters because if the whole thing was high energy and crazy you, you're gonna throw the audience or you become one of the wacky characters yeah so <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. It was, yeah. uh, it, and it also helps take myself outside of the story. Yeah. So I'm kind of with the audience following the story along. I know. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Garrison Keillor, and that's another part of what we do. We kind of uh, amass our influences. Um, it sounds like you, you liked a lot of Garrison Keillor. I, I, I love some Garrison Keillor, but when I was growing up, I was more fireside theater in terms of influences oh, from my oh style of storytelling. Yes. So who were, the oh. people, who were the people that influenced you? Who were the people that you looked and went, okay, I, I need well, to it, learn from this person? It's, I, it's so funny that you said fireside theater, man. When I was like 12, 13 years old, uh, I listened to a fireside theater, Dick Danger, Third Eye. And I <laughs> oh, remember... Yeah. It changed my life. It's it, like, I, it's funny that you say Fireside Theater because I remember thinking like, wow, when that guy changes voices when he's doing the detective or when he's doing that, it just changes the story. Uh, it, that's, I, I, you're killing me that you just said Fireside Theater. That's, that's like, Fireside Theater was a, was a big one. Um, you know, listening to old album, I mean, uh, 
you know, when I was 10, 11 years old, my brother and I listening to Eddie Murphy albums, you know, in our basement, so our parents couldn't hear, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, with, you know, with the advent of the Walkman, yeah. I mean, and I'm really dating myself, you know, yep. listening to uh, Robin Williams, and uh, I'd say Eddie Murphy, Robin Williams, Garrison Keillor, and the Fire Sign Theater were like the, the big those were the big ones. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, you know, so as a young comic, you tend to imprint and you tend to, to graft on to some people that you get to see in clubs. And I remember when I first, oh, yeah. first, first passed to the comic strip, um, I would listen to people like Barry Berry or, you know, um, Dennis Wolfberg, Joe Bolster. And I would watch those guys like it was a religion. Who were the guys oh, yeah. when you came in, because you came in about a decade after I did, who were the guys when yeah. you came in that you were watching and went, I need to watch this guy? I mean, there were there are certain comics. I don't, I, I could say this now because because like we're friends, and I'm not gonna sound like a psychopath, but there are certain comics that I just obsessed over and had to watch every like the, the Shapiro brothers, Rick and Rob Shapiro. Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with watching them perform. I, I I would stay sometimes hours after my own set just to watch them perform because uh, I I couldn't believe the uh, the inertia that they had and their ability to like fall in and out of voices when they were telling a story. And also Dave Attell, just because his writing was just perfect. Like nobody could, that guy could, that guy could tailor a joke, like, like still like no other. Yeah. Let's, um, cause you're talking about tailoring a joke and we kind of danced around this cause we we're talking a little bit about structure, even as we're talking about influences. How do you write? What is your process when you're going to work on a bit? Um, well, usually, I mean, I, I wish it was more professional sounding, but usually it, it, you know, it starts, it starts with a word or a topic and I sort of build out from there. Usually it's, um, it's a subject and then the, 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 the word or the subject is kind of like the thesis. And then I build out from whatever the word or the thesis is and try and tell a story. And just a story, just a boring narrative of the story, like as an example, like if I'm, if, if I'm talking about grocery stores, you know, you build out from that word and then you start talking about an experience that you've had that, that, that was the thesis of why you hate grocery stores. And then after you build out from that, well, who are the people that you hate? Okay, the guy at the deli counter. Now, okay, that guy, the guy that I remember from the deli counter, he's kind of gruff. He's got kind of a Brooklyn accent, talks too fast, okay. And the guy at the checkout, okay, well, that guy sounds kind of like a hillbilly, and uh, he's got sort of a drawl. And then it becomes developing the deli guy character, you know, his accent, his cadence, his, his whole, um, because the act is usually becomes whatever the strongest characters are. And then eventually it sort of falls away uh, the whole, sometimes the entire grocery, the grocery bit will fall away and all that will be left is that New York deli slicing guy. And then it becomes, how do I get from the subject of groceries to this deli guy? And what can I do? I mean, like a lot of times, because you and I have worked together, a lot of times um, if it's really rolling and the audience is with it and I stay in character of this deli guy long enough, sometimes I'll learn just through improvising more disturbing or interesting things about this deli character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. Now that that's kind of fascinating because um, we've done a, a couple of these podcasts before, um, and our first two guests were almost polar opposite. 
Tom Dreesen, who's very structured and very much, you know, writes down and just a master with a pad and pen. And then Rick Overton, who everything comes from improv. And it sounds like Rick, you're, you're kind of in the middle. Yeah, I'm a huge Rick Overton fan, though, man. That guy, Rick Overton is the godfather. He is, uh, I mean, talk about a guy that can lock in on a character. Like, yeah, yeah he's a joy to watch. Absolutely. So for you, it sounds like the process is more evolving the characters and doing the work of, the, you know, writing through the evolution of the characters. Yeah, it's 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 literally like the, the characters become the uh, the avatar that I can work through with an audience. It's it's actually it's it's sometimes it's difficult just to be myself and and and, and speak with the audience. But for some reason, if I lock into a character in the middle of the story, I can. I don't know, man. There's a freedom there. Okay. Now, how long do you stick with a character before you before you decide you can't get anything from him? Because I know for a lot of times with me with stories, you know, I'll take my Mexico story as an example. There are a whole uh, lot of characters that I want to bring in, but I haven't found right. a way to make them funny yet. So right. how long do you wait or how much do you work on it? Well, a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times the audience will let me know. I mean, a, a lot of times um, you, you can tell when you um, when you tell it when you're telling a story if the audience is really into it. Like, I, one of the things I learned, like if I told stories about my dad and I break into the broke, it would connect with a certain part of the audience. Or certain times, you know, there there've definitely been times where I've been playing down south and I'll be talking about my experience of being a fish out of water down south. And I'll jump into the character of some southern person that I ran into, and you could feel the room going like, "Is he making fun of us?" You know, <laughs> and you sort of backpedal away and just kind of keep moving. Yeah, you know, I really feel like that. Like I, I, I learned, um, I learned that a lot from uh, from watching you. Know, speaking of watching comics, um, I learned that a lot from George Wallace. Like he could take the temperature of the room as he was telling a bit and modify accordingly in the moment, in, in real time. And that to me was amazing to watch. You know, especially if you, do, if you do like a couple of nights in a row with him and you'll see how he'll, he'll tailor, not only for how the room was, but he'll tailor for how the joke's going. Which, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's pretty artful. I mean, you had, I mean, Comic strip in the eighties, man. You must, you must have seen your share of George Wallace. Oh yeah, we we saw a lot of George Wallace. And, um, it's fascinating because I, I worked with him the first time outside of New York City was in Atlantic City, and we were doing um, four shows over two nights, uh, a, a semi corporate retreat kind of thing. Um, and Lord. I was hosting, and he was the headline event. And the first show went really well, as they do when you're a new comic and you're excited and the second show, I showed that I was a new comic. And uh, he said, uh, the advice George gave to me after the second show is he goes, you have to listen and understand what they want from you. And that, that's something that I think sticks with and resonates. The audience wants something from you, you know? And I think a lot of comics, a lot of new comics, and, and this this podcast is geared towards a lot of the newbies will tend to look at it as if the audience is expecting them not to be funny. Whereas I've always found it to be just the opposite. They've paid a cover charge a minimum and admission to get to that corporate event 
you know, they, even now they've gone to the Zoom show online because they expect you to be funny because they're yeah. banking on you being funny. And I don't think their comics use that in their craft as much. So yeah. I, I think the next question that where I want to segue with you is how long did it take you to learn to listen to the audience? And what are the things you do to listen to them while you're performing your stories? Well, I mean, like I said before, after that, after that summer in 96, I, I really became obsessed with listening to the other comics, knowing their other bits. Even if I was just doing a guest set, uh, even if that, that, that the more I paid attention to the audience or the more I could um, use a callback with, with, with the audience uh, or with uh, one of the other comics bits, uh, it, for some reason, it, it elevated my relationship immediately with the audience. Like usually, as soon as the, the MC would like list a credit or, or, or bring me up on stage, one of the first bits, if one of the first bits I did, I was like, well, looks like Jim's not going to Mexico this year again, you know, blah, blah, blah. That one joke, even if it wasn't a great joke, the fact that I threw back to you, mm -hmm. it it just helped the set. It helped. It it, it 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 was like being introduced by you, yeah, to the audience because you had already established that rapport. And it was sort of piggybacking on that, like, oh, this guy must be a friend of Jim's, you know. <laughs> and yeah, I, and a so, sense of community. Yeah, and I, the the power of that, you know that 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 was the, that was the biggest thing is that it really does come down to your relationship, the building that every. Every show is a first date with the audience. And, and when I kind of relied on that, that it was just sort of an introduction, there needed to be trust, there needed to be a rapport, um, it, it just changed the sets. And especially at that time, um, you know, we're, we're talking like mid-90s here. Um, I didn't see a lot of comics my age doing that. So it kind of helped to sort of separate me from the herd of, you know, Clinton impressions and, and Monica Lewinsky jokes. Yeah. <laughs> now, let's talk about that for a little bit, because you try and, you know, in my opinion, watching you, you try and mine a as original path as you can with your material. If there's, you know, 10 comics talking about comic books and I put you on a show. I know you're not talking about comic books. You know, you, you've kind of gone out of your way to to make it more personal and more different. Was that a conscious choice, or is that just how you're wired? Well, I think I think one thing that I found is sometimes the more personal that you make it, the more universal it becomes. Like if you're talking about if if you're talking about you know uh, parents, or you're talking about uh, marriage, or you're talking about you know uh, you know coming up with uh, money for the rent every month, like any subject, when you're, when you're really sincere and you're sharing a story about your struggles with that, I find they connect a lot more than when you're just spouting off this week's topics. Yeah. You know, I know, I know myself when, um, like I, I, I learned, I learned a ton about comedy opening for Mark Riccadonna. And this is re this is like less than 10 years ago watching him connect with an audience and tell stories about his wife and kids and stuff like that and how strong the connection would be as opposed to somebody who went up there and did a Trump impression or somebody who went up there and did, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I feel like the, the personal touch, no matter how odd the story is, there's always going to be that one person that ran to Mexico. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There, it's surprising where the audience does intersect with, with you. But I found my opinion, and you may differ from this, and if you do, I'd love to hear your take on it. I don't think the audience actually connects on the details. I think they connect on the emotions behind the details. Yeah. yeah. Like when Pryor's talking about, you know, setting himself on fire, freebasing, I don't think anybody in the audience had that human <laughs> experience, but we all understand pain, you know, or when yeah. he talks about having to confess to Jim Brown about having an addiction, none of us had to confess to, to an NFL running back, but we all understand <laughs> shame, you know? Right. And, and I think that comics overlook that. In comics, you know, all my shit's too unique, and it's really not. You know, um, I know you do a lot of stuff about your dad, you know, and you put the brogue on on occasion when you do it. Um, and I've actually seen you do your dad both ways with the brogue, and then sometimes you leave it off. And I want to get uh, to, I want to talk to you about that choice in a minute. But, you know, my dad had an accent coming from Greece, and it, it, there's a universal nature of it that I think we all know. Let's talk about right. that a little bit. You, I've seen you do the same material in a lot uh -huh. of sets, but I've never seen you do it the same way. Again, yeah. is that conscious or is it taking the temperature well, of the def audience? Definitely. There's like, there's like a base that you work from. And then I find there's sort of like a, a, a perimeter around that base that's flexible. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the story is always going to be the worst Christmas present you always got, but it can change in terms of the order of the relatives that show up. It can change in how harsh you're going to portray dad or an uncle or an aunt or how, how light, you know, like for instance, I, I remember a, a show that a show where I opened for you, where I was telling a story about my dad and literally all of my sisters, my brother, a couple of uncles and aunt were in the audience. So I kind of kept the characterization kind and light as yeah. opposed to really going in on the drinking and really going in on the accent and all that stuff because I knew I was going to piss him off if I if I portrayed him as this lucky charms you know hooch head it was <laughs> it was going to be it was going to change the energy so I just sort of lightened up the prog and lightened up the characterization I mean it it, it, it all depends you know it's funny if I can go if I'm doing a show in Atlanta and I'm telling a story about uh, about my dad, I can go as hog wild on that accent and they will eat it up. But if I do a show like that in Boston and I start making fun of his Irishness, that audience will get cold. Yeah. Because that's half their dads. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it hits home a little too much, you know, yeah. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about the, the relationship with the audience and how much, Where's the line between catering to what they need and pandering to get a laugh? Wow, that's interesting. It's a uh, it's a fine line. I mean, that it is, that is a tightrope because you do want to feel you do want them to feel included, and you do want them to feel like they're a part of the conversation. I mean, I will say, I find it annoying as an audience member when I find a comic doing those tropes where they're like, you know what, call me crazy, but this is the best military in the entire world. <laughs> or when they start yelling, like, you know, where are my single ladies at or stuff like that. I, you know, I, that kind of pandering is kind of gross. 
but I do think there is a certain there is a certain amount of taking the temperature in the room that can be done with with a, a certain with with the decent amount of sincerity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's it's it is a fine line. Uh, I mean, I, I find a lot with, with a lot of younger comics, they'll just barrel right in there. They, they're not really caring what the uh, how it's gauging. And there's something brave about that. There's also kind of something kind of silly about that. But then something that I'll find with uh, sort of let's say more veteran road comics is uh, is that weird thing where it's like not even a joke. It's just a blanket statement uh, that's. <laughs> I, 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 God, I'm trying to think of the more eloquent way to put this. A round of applause for the first responders kind of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. What is funny about that? Yeah. But it, again, it's them trying to endear themselves to the audience. It's them trying to right. get the audience on their side. Right. But something about that is like underestimating the intelligence of the audience. Like wildly. Now, okay, so... I think, and you and I have had this conversation off camera before, we differ on this. You give the audience a lot more credit than I do. I generally think that a room full of people drinking are basically a room full of idiots and my job is to lift them up to my level. Whereas you don't, you give them some credit for being intelligent. Why? Why, why in your opinion are they intelligent? Besides the fact that they no. bought a ticket to see you, which was the, the most intelligent thing they could have done. <laughs> Well, so what I found is if you give them the benefit of the doubt and, and, and you really are speaking to them on, you know, they can tell when they're being lectured and when they're, when there's somebody's really sharing something. And I find that nine times out of 10, when, when you give them that gesture, whether or not the audience deserves it, they're going to rise to that occasion, whether or not they're that smart or not, you know, uh, as opposed to, I, like, like I, I'll find if I'm if I'm gonna, you know, pose pose a theory to uh, to the audience. I think it, it, it's a lot easier to be able to say, "Can I can I share this with you?" Because this happened to me. Am I crazy, or or is this what the experience is like? As opposed to saying, "You know, folks, we all know what it's like." When it's, you know, yeah, it's like, like get ready to laugh, people who aren't as smart as me, because I'm about those piss some gospel on you. You know what I mean? It's like, ugh. I don't know if I want to listen to that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I'm closer to that guy than I am to where you are. <laughs> I, uh, I, do, I don't deliberately go over my audience's head, but I do what I do, and you got to be this tall to ride this ride. And that's always been the way I looked at it, and I'm not going to dummy down my language. I'm not going to dummy down my references. I'm sure. going to hope you get them. But I'm also not going to make fun of you for not getting it. And I think, that's, that's, I think to me that's always been the line. If you, you have every prerogative to stay as intelligent as you want, but don't beat the audience up because they didn't get the same education as you. If I'm off talking right. about a Kerouac novel and you've never read it, I can't right. expect a laugh. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, that was a big lesson. I mean, I, that, it's funny in terms of the Kerouac reference. That was a big lesson when you make the leap to touring as opposed to just being in New York. Cause I was a New York city comic for, you know, 10, 15 years before I did the road. And I had to bomb pretty hard that first year on the road before I realized that that joke about the L train just isn't going to play in Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
the um, it, it's amazing to me because I, I did I used to have a whole section where I would talk about books, you know, yeah. and the bad lessons I learned from books, you know, mm -hmm. you know, because everyone wants you to read. Nobody wants you to pick yeah. up any of these habits. Uh, right. And I would do that bit in New York and it would it would crush and I would do that bit, you know, on the road and people would just look at me like, no, no. <laughs> Y'all have a nice day, but no. That first time, that, that yeah. first time you experience those crickets is, I mean, in retrospect, super funny, but it's so terrifying. Like, what is this, Rockefeller Center? Cricket. <laughs> you, I, you know what I find amazing? I, I find it amazing when I see a performer have that moment for the first time. Because oh, yeah. uh, it, it, there's part of me that wants to laugh and, and enjoy the spectacle of watching a human being squirm, but there's also part of me that goes, oh, come here, let me give you a hug. We've all been it's like it's like watching a chick fall out of the nest. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, but also heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now you've also written for other people as well. You know, um, celebrity debt match and things of that yep. nature. What yep. What's the major difference between writing comedy for you and writing comedy for other performers and also other mediums? Well, I'd say I'd say the latter is a lot uh, easier. You know, I, I mean, one thing, uh, you know, writing writing bits, writing bits for TV, or writing, you know, uh, uh, material where you're imitating celebrities and stuff like that. I find that hell of a lot easier. I mean, you just break down, you break down the beats, you break down the cadence, you break down, you borrow a couple of their catchphrases. You stitch that together. It's it's pretty easy. I think the hardest voice to write in is your own. All right. Now this is interesting because you know I also have always felt it was easier for me when I wrote jokes for people like Dennis Miller than or D Rodney Dangerfield than when I wrote jokes for Jim and Dreamers. Yeah. And I've always said because I understand them more because I'm a fan. You know? <laughs> but you're talking about literally stitching together catchphrases and things of that nature. So you're talking about a deconstruction of, of the Basically. person that you're writing for. What, yeah. What's your process of deconstructing? What do you study when you're going to write for somebody? I mean, it's a lot like watching Wild America or, uh, or what was that PBS show where they watched, uh, it's like the PBS show from the 70s where they watched, uh, it's like I think it was Buddy Epson or something would watch gazelles being taken down by lions or something. But it is a lot like that. Like you just watch if I've got if I'm doing Britney Spears or doing Kim Kardashian or whoever it is, you know, you just watch an ungodly amount of their of their footage and their interviews, and you start to see the you know you do the pattern recognition, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 then it's a matter of once once you've got them their nature and their cadence and all that memorized. Then you just put them, you just put them through a wood chipper of well, what would you know what would happen if Britney Spears were to fight Christina Aguilera, and then you just keep running that through the drafts until you've got your perfect fight. I mean, that was the process with just about every sketch on there. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it, I, I find myself now still doing bits like that. You know, with 
celebrities that you know didn't even come into the spectrum until 20 years after the show was off the air you know it, it's but it, but it is a process i mean it really is just mimicry and you know pretty yeah. simple all right so now let's uh, let's shift a little bit because you got more than just the writing that we can talk about you also do a lot of voice work yeah um and we could probably do a whole podcast on just how do you get the voice work? That's not where I want to go with this. Where I want to go with this uh, is what do you do? Because people don't understand that our voice, our voices are basically our tools. What do you yeah. do to keep your voice healthy? What do you do to practice? And what do you do to make sure you don't hurt your voice when you're doing these impressions? Well, um, one of the things, one of the things that, uh, that, that I mean, that helps. I mean, as cliche as it is, like I have it. What I have it with me right now is uh, I'm constantly drinking water with uh, with honey and lemon in it to mm -hmm. to prevent nodes and to prevent uh, um, any any damage to my voice. Because what's what's funny is some things, and and I hadn't really found that out until I started working in in, in video games and stuff like that. That sometimes you'll be doing a voice. And it will literally blow out your vocal cords if you do it excessively. I mean, luckily now, I mean, we there was a strike many years ago with SAG over this. And luckily we won. Because now, in terms of long-term voiceovers, and uh, pardon me. <laughs> so I moved my cat. Because um, I'm a professional. Um, uh, there's a rule now with SAG that uh, when they're doing long-term voice work that you can only work for four hours a day because you'll blow out your voice in four hours. Doing, a, doing a, a voice like, say, like, a, I don't know, uh, of a monster or, or, or a, you know, a villain with a gravelly voice. Like, I know that, like, the, the work that I did for The Walking Dead on their video game series, you know, I had, I, I, for the character of Max, I, I, I had this voice that was sort of a cross between Nick Nolte and Michael Rooker. And um, it would just blow out my voice every day having to do that. Listen here, I don't want to listen to your blah, 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 blah. And like, by, by like the third hour, you're shocked. You know, so it's, uh, I don't know. They, you know, it, it, it's, it, you have to be very careful with that instrument because it is, I mean, I've, I've watched really good comics and good singers just blow their voice out. Uh, come, you know, just doing certain voice, and there are certain voices that are, that are, you know, really easy to do. You know, it, it just depends on what part of your. That's another thing about voice work. You know, it, 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 one of the things that you have to do, and one of the only reasons I think I, I got into this voiceover uh, business is because I trained for years as an actor, learning how to use my voice. You know, using how to use my diaphragm, my throat, how to pitch, how to modify your voice. You know. What a lot of people don't know about people who do impressions and stuff like that is, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's it's not just random luck. I mean, it is a skill, and it's and it's uh, it's it 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 takes as long to master the instrument of your own vocal cords as it does to say master playing a piano or a guitar. Yeah, you know, and and sometimes I mean there <laughs> there have been. Uh, you know, I remember that, that there was a uh, there's a pilot that I did uh, a couple of years ago where um, the, the MC would show us clips of various people 
with no sound and we'd have to make up their voices just by looking at their face and the way that they were talking. And uh, obviously it didn't go past pilot, but, uh, but it was interesting to be able to, to be able to look at somebody's face and just by their height, their demeanor, the way they carried their gait, it would modify the way, you, you know, uh, you would, you would say their voice. I mean, it's a weird skill, man, but it also, I mean, the other thing that, that I find that, uh, in voiceover that really helps is, is to work on your breathing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I don't know, man, there's a lot that goes into it. It's a really, it's a funny thing in voiceover because uh, a lot of people think like, man, you lucked out. I mean, that's gotta be the easiest job in the world. Just walk in there and do a voice for a couple hours and you get paid, you know, X amount of dollars for doing it, but it is work. Yeah. Now you go, you balance voice work with, creating shows and you also tour on the road. So there are points in your career where you want six or eight months with doing no voice other than Sean when you're on oh, the yeah. road and then boom into a vocal booth. You know, when, how do you make that transition? Well, an interesting thing was, you know, for me it was um, at when Celebrity Deathmatch was at its peak, um, which just happened to be shortly after uh, September 11th, I actually quit comedy for about seven years and just did uh, the voice work and, and, and television writing. Didn't touch stand up at all. And uh, I found after about six, seven years, you know, I got, I missed it terribly and had to jump back into it. Nowadays, I mean, it's <laughs> now during the pandemic, there's no worry about any of those transitions because <laughs> we're all just trying to keep our cats off our kitchen tables. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, but now it's, it, it's easy. I mean, career wise, it's pretty easy to be able to do all three. What I realized is like a majority of the time that, uh, you know, you'll be doing voice work. Usually it's usually in the morning, it's usually an AM gig, you know, and then the writing stuff, it's usually, you know, if you get your pages in by 4 PM, you're free for the rest of the day. So it's pretty easy to kind of s- schedule the three things together. They don't, they don't really, there's not a lot of blowback and especially in the age of the internet. I mean, it's great to be able to, I mean, there, there've been times now where I've been able to audition uh, a voiceover for a, for a cartoon or a commercial while I'm sitting in an airport using, you know, a set of headphones and an iPad. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a golden age for, for that line of work right now, because I mean, I mean, I, do, you, do you remember what that, like, it was, oh, yeah. I, I remember in the mid nineties and the, in the late nineties, it was a voiceovers was like kind of a pain in the ass gig. Yeah. And now that's all changed. Now yeah. you don't even need to, I mean, here's the interesting thing in the middle of this pandemic, the voiceover business has not slowed down because everybody can do their auditions from home. Yeah. And now they're doing the finals, final uh, recording from home. I remember. When, <laughs> right? Yeah. I remember you when, know the guy like Brian Brian McFadden and the big swinging dicks in the in the in the in the voiceover industry, man. They're just all of them built sound stages or sound booths in in their homes, and yeah. they yeah now they never need to leave. <laughs> Which is they they were prepping for this moment for a long time. Right. <laughs> but it was great. I don't know if you saw that. But it, he showed on Facebook like a, a like a step by step of how he took this closet and he built oh, yeah. it into this like perfectly good sound booth. I thought that's genius. Oh yeah, you know? I mean it's easier than you think. Uh, this stu- my yeah. studio in New Jersey has it uh, a sound room and it was surprisingly one of the easier things for us to build. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, you know, I'm, 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 we're getting ready to move back to the East Coast in August. And, you know, as we're looking at real estate right now, I'm going like, oh, I got to build that sound booth. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to touch on, on this with uh, voiceover work because there are two types of voiceover work. There is voiceover work, you know, which is traditional voiceover pictures and moving images. And then there's cartoons. Yeah. And cartoons have to match the movement of the animation. Oh, yeah. And I remember when um, Chris Farley died, at, you know, post, uh, and, and they were in the middle of Shrek, which was already heavily drawn. Um, yeah. They brought me in to audition for the role of Shrek. You know, they gave it to some hack named Mike Myers. Um, <laughs> I, went through, I went through seven voice auditions, and the last one was literally me matching the video literally me working right. with the director to match the video. Can you talk about that process? Cause you've done some cartoon work. Yeah, it's well, you know, the, the process has changed so much uh, over the past three decades. It's like you're saying, like in the nineties, it was that matching voice to picture. And you know, that had its own set of challenges. Um, it, it was, I mean, doing cartoons was not, not different than, you know, doing looping for movies of, of your own dialogue. Um, but now, I mean, I can, I can really only speak right now for, for, uh, the animation that's in video games right now. Now, a lot of the times, uh, they will have a camera on you and they will have, uh, they, they'll mark up your face and they'll actually like any of the work that I've done on the, the walking dead the past couple of years, you know, that a lot of the times that'll be my face. Those would be my facial expressions that Max is doing along with the voice. Um, so it's sort of a different, it, it, it's, it's sort of a different thing now. Now it's, now it's sort of the, uh, the cart leading the horse where a lot of the times, uh, they'll, they'll video record my face while they'll be recording my doing the voices and then the animators will match accordingly. Um, which was actually the polar opposite is when you, of when you were doing Shrek, where it was you matching your voice to the, to the image there. But, there, you know, I will say in traditional animation, it still is that Shrek way. Whereas with video games now, it is actually the cart leading the horse. And with the Grand Theft Auto series, with the Manhunt series, uh, with a lot of the, the various series, um, it, uh, it is real-time uh, video audio recording. And then they sort of... <laughs> it's like the it's like the computer uh, equivalent of rotoscoping, where they just sort of paint over the actor. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a crazy process now, um, and it's it's always evolving. I feel like every five years or so, it's a totally different method with animation. Which is great. You know, like you Pixar know. changed the game. <laughs> like so many, so many, uh, yeah. so many, so many. Different and it's also, it's interesting to me, and this is, this is, I mean, this, this definitely speaks to that, uh, um, to the animation voiceover question. It's uh, the old days. What I used to enjoy is uh, when you go in for an audition for a cartoon series and they'd have all those giant pictures of the characters. So you'd have to study that picture of that character and come up with the voice for your audition based on Okay, well, this is, let's see, it's a kangaroo. He's wearing an astronaut's uh, outfit and he has a mustache. Okay, so that's a little bit of Sam Elliott with like a tinge of Woody Allen with, a, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, that, that to me was always a fun process. Like I, uh, 
there was a, I mean, you know, like, like any guy who's been in this business long enough, I have a, a laundry list of failed pilots with the Cartoon Network or Comedy Central where, um, where it, like, that would happen. You'd walk in there and, uh, and you'd like, a, a good example is a, a show that's about like 15, 16 years ago that was being directed by Pete Rodriguez, who was the original voice of Speed Racer oh, in the wow. old late these early seven that to me that was the big thrill because i was a huge speed racer fan yeah. and the fact that i got to meet the voice of the original speed racer was like man that was a thrill but we worked on this pilot called chuck and Chugel, and it was about two monkeys that were astronauts that got marooned on this planet and uh it was sort of a gilligan's island sort of plot where these two sentient monkeys who had crash landed on this american spaceship were just every week trying to figure out a way to fix the spaceship and get off the planet and deal with these alien creatures. But, you know, <laughs> you looked at one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, yeah, Chugel looked, uh, looked a lot like a cross between just the drawing looked like a cross between, um, Don Knotts and, uh, and Fred Stoller. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And the hero monkey kind of looked like William Shatner or Gil Gerard or whatnot. And, you know, I never, I never end up booking those roles. So I just zeroed in on the, on the, uh, on the goofy looking monkey and literally did my entire audition just doing a Fred Stoller impression and ended up booking the gig and doing the pilot. Basically just, I kept thinking like, man, they could have just, Book Fred Stoller. <laughs> I mean, it probably would have been a lot more expensive because he's very, you know, he's a pretty famous guy. But, yeah. Uh, but the what's funny is the producers had no idea. They're like, "What a wacky voice! That was just a great voice you did." And I'm like, I'm still Fred Stoller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about pilots because you know, yeah. you and I, um, you and I both started uh, with the same company when uh, we broke in with TV. We both worked for MTV. Uh, although that wasn't my start start, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, and we've uh, we've swapped stories about how notoriously cheap the network has been on occasion. Uh, hopefully yeah. they're better now. Um, but during the course of it, you create stuff, you bring it to your bosses, you bring it to the producers, you go through the piloting process. Can you talk to the audience about what it takes to, to just get something piloted? And then we'll go into the heartbreak of testing it and, and getting it turned down well here's the, here's the crazy thing about about the the years that we spent at, at mtv i've seen it happen now just about every kind of way that it can i've seen the traditional you walk in earnestly with the script under your arm you plead your case you hope they read it maybe they call you in for a few more meetings they tell you what they like they tell you don't it's a laborious process. It takes months to get anywhere. And I've also been in the situation where I've been with the right producer, um, where the producer will just have a couple of hits underneath their belt and the producer will just walk in and be like, here's the premise. It's a game show where blah, blah, blah goes blah, blah, blah. And there's blah, blah, blah. All right. Write me a check for about $300,000. We'll give you a pilot in January. <laughs> And they'll just write the check and we'll yeah. walk out with that check. But usually that's only when you've got like a, you know, a Fred Graber or, yeah. you know, like some Titan sitting next to you. And I've also had, I mean, especially with, you know, places like Comedy Central or VH1 or stuff like that. I've done the thing where you pitch the idea, they give you your money, 
you shoot the pilot and you spend like months throwing yourself and, and everything you've got into this pilot and then they screen it in a board meeting they're like nah yeah nah. yeah I, I, mean, it, that, I think it's 6% of all pilots go to series yeah 6% it, it took me years to be able to just roll with that punch. I remember the first time, uh, the first pilot that I'd ever written and directed, or co-written and directed, um, this this live action, it was, it was <laughs> which is funny, because there's still clips of this on YouTube. It was a live action comedy, which was basically like a parody. This is, this, this is an interesting, it was, it was sort of like a parody of those late 60s, early 70s horrible sci-fi shows that we grew up on, like, yeah. like um, Star Trek or Buck Rogers. And the funny thing about this is that the, the premise of this was it was a um, it was basically the love boat in outer space set in 1972, but the future was the year 1994. And uh, these love boats were in outer space and uh, the, the title of the pilot was Space Station Malibu. And, um, and the cast of it were, were all, uh, you know, guys who are now pretty well known, like uh, Nick Stevens and Baron Vaughn and uh, Aaron. Uh, like, they, there are a lot of great young comics were in this thing. And we spent a lot of money on the set, costumes. And I just thought, man, this is the thing that's going to make my career. This is going to be the greatest thing we ever did. We spent two weeks shooting it, spent an ungodly amount of money uh, making this thing, rolled it in, and they were like, yeah, this seems more like a show for 40-year-old stoners. Next. And I remember being like, but but we spent all that money. And we, we it, you mean nobody's going to see this? They're like, nah, better luck next time. But anyway, hey, hey at least you made a couple of bucks, right? I'm like, huh, I spent that. <laughs> and that, ele I mean, there's nothing worse than that elevator ride down. Down, yeah. Meeting where you're like... Yeah. And we, yeah, the depression kicks in and you're like, maybe I could wash cars. Maybe. <laughs> I like bartending. I was a good bartender. <laughs> like, but, but yet we never do. We never do wash the cars or bartend. We keep coming back. I don't like I it, it I I would say a failed pilot a, a failed pilot screening is like it has the power of three hundred bad sets. Really? Ah, <laughs> uh, oh. I can I I can walk away from a bad set easily when it, when it, when when a pilot gets rejected. It that's that's definitely like two or three weeks of ice cream and, and copious amounts of bourbon. Oh, I am the exact polar opposite. If I if I if someone rejects a pilot, I'm there like, okay. If I have the rights, I'll shop it somewhere else. And if I don't, you know, on to the next thing. But if I have a bad set, it's it's you don't want to be around me. Like <laughs> like Jesse knows well, when I've had a bad well, set. I haven't experienced that. <laughs> oh oh, car rides back from, with me when I have a bad set are miserable. I do. You I know don't. What's talking, what? I think it's. I think that is a generational thing it is it is very interesting to me because there is definitely a a generation in comedy that will i mean because you know I, I spent you know uh, uh you know the first five or six years of, of touring you know working as a feature for various comics and there's a generation 
that will burn a four to six hour rant about how they're never going back to Cleveland. <laughs> Pittsburgh can fuck themselves. Oh yeah. Connecticut has no idea what funny is. Oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, and then two weeks afterwards, it turns into, I need to go back and show those fuckers. You know? Because <laughs> I'll burn on it for a couple of weeks. I'll absolutely burn on it for a couple of weeks. And it's I, funny. It is the one advantage, I will say, that millennial comics seem to have over, over Gen X uh, or even boomer comics. Um, their ability to get over a bad set is remarkable. Yeah. Like, just the ability to just shake it off and be like, oh, well, yeah, which, you know, I, you know. You know where I've seen this a lot? During the pandemic, when comics are doing shows on Zoom, you know, yeah. and, and platforms like this, because um, you don't really hear the laughter very well on these things. So comics from our generation do it, and in the middle of it, you see the eyes go wide. You see the pads start to sit in. Where's the newbies? You see the boards open. Oh, Yeah. And the new comics are just relaxed and just talking. And because I, I, a, they're more used to technology, but b, they're also used to the smaller audiences. I mean, my last, yeah. my last gig before I did a, a Zoom show in March was my first Zoom show. But the gig I did just before that was in front of nine hundred people. So I did a nine hundred seat theater, and then my next show was in a Zoom room with fourteen people, and I can't hear the laughter. Yeah, so can I be honest with you? Like, I've never, I, I, I have not done a Zoom show yet, and for no other reason than I'm still trying to figure out how it works. I think, I think that the first Zoom show I'm going to do is actually yours. Yeah, it's I've and and I've watched friends on Zoom. I've seen people do well, but it's still one of those things that I look at with curiosity, like. Boy, you really have to modify, don't you? You like do. You really, this is a new comedy form. This isn't just comedy, comedy, oh, yeah. Zoom club. It, it's a this different a animal. Whole, yeah. And, and we, um, mean, we, we alluded to it earlier, where you, you're talking about making sure that you get those laugh points in your stories. Yeah. Here, here you have to work the silence. You have to work the nuances of the story. That's the major difference that I found here. You have to engage, you know, with right. the details, um, which is just, I'm sitting here going, oh, this is more like a storyteller show. All right. I'll, I'll, I know what to do here. I mean, I can, I can live with that. I, but it's, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, it's, I mean, the times make the man, I guess, and the times yeah. make the, you know, make the art form, but uh, it is, it, a very different style of comedy is going to emerge from this. Oh, yeah. But, you know, yeah. artists have to art. You know, we, yeah. we have to come up with it. I want to get to, because um, I know we're about to hit into some overtime, and I, I promise you, I keep it to around an hour. But I've got to talk about the movie. i got to sure. talk about those seven years that you, uh, you, you kind of dropped out. And a lot of that was because you had a passion project post 9-11. Um, Greenpoint yeah. Tavern, which is streaming on Amazon Prime, even as we speak. Um, tell us about that passion project. Tell us about how you came up with it, what you had to learn to write it, and then what the experience has been post-filming it. Sure. I mean, I'll I'll do the, the best abridged version <laughs> that I can. Um, in, uh, 
from 2000 to 2001, um, I had a sketch troupe at Caroline's called Cheap Shots. And uh, we were one of the first multimedia sketch troops ever. We, uh, we would do live sketches and then we would pepper the live sketches with commercial parodies, animation. Um, mm -hmm. Did I lose you for a second? There for we go. For a second, there we go. Um, and we, and uh, we're, we're, we're a hot group. And then uh, on September 11th, uh, we lost a few of our members. Um, Pete was a uh, firefighter and Ann worked at a company called Cantor Fitzgerald. And uh, we lost them both in the towers. And um, <clears throat> as a result, I, uh, I disbanded the sketch troupe. I quit stand-up comedy. I had to sit down with my agent, my manager. Uh, and I said, I'm done with comedy. Nothing's funny anymore. I'm out. And basically just spent about a year just getting fucked up and drinking and doing as many drugs as I could hold on to. And somewhere in the midst of that, I sat down and I wrote this script uh, for Greenpoint Tavern, which I originally had written as a play. And um, about a year later, in like the summer uh, or the spring of 2002, I ran into a buddy of mine who was a film director named Parker Cross. And uh, I went to a premiere of a, of a film that he had just had released at the Zigfield. And I had the, <laughs> the play under my arm. And showed up, of course, drunk to the premiere. And he said to me, you know, what have you been working on? I said, oh, I wrote the script. Give it a read. I don't know if it's any good. <laughs> and he called me back about three days later. And he said, look, man, if we can get together like a quarter of a million dollars, I'll shoot this thing. Because I love the script. I really connect with it. It's one of the best things you've ever written. And being an idiot, uh, I was like, oh, I got that money in the bank, man. <laughs> Let's just shoot it. Let's shoot it this summer. And uh, he said to me i remember him saying to me dude never use your own money that's the worst thing you can do because you might never get that money back but because i was 29 years old i was like it's okay man this movie don't worry about it i mean what was i going to spend my money on anyhow so for the next seven years um we spent shooting this movie and um you know we took it to some festivals and uh and we got really positive feedback but nobody bought the movie so then it just sat in limbo for another 10 years uh 11 years uh after we had shot and edited this and i'd spent every penny i had you know i by the time we were by the time we finished this movie uh i was like surfing on couches and was you know living check to check as opposed to being like pretty wealthy for a guy my age in 2001 2002 I was dead ass broke by 2010. I mean, it was it was crazy. It was one of the reasons I went back into stand up. I needed the money, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and so then it just floated around for a while. And then uh, you know I, I was I was I was lucky enough that uh, that you and your company had taken an interest in the project that we'd made and uh, and uh, brought it to uh, to Amazon. And then this year has, has really been a dream come true because uh, now that the film has been streaming on Amazon, uh, not only has the response been overwhelming just from friends of mine and, and you know, strangers or whatnot who've, who've watched the film, but uh, it's, it's gotten quite a bit of industry attention from people in our industry that have seen it. And we're like, holy shit, dude, you weren't wasting your life. This is actually a great film. And that's yeah. a lot of that is a lot of that, I got to say, is due to you. I mean, this, this thing would have sat in limbo 
on a hard drive indefinitely. You know? <laughs> I gotta, I gotta say. Each one's gotta help each other. That's what we're here for, you know? Uh, but there is, there is a big cast and, a, and, a, and an enormous crew that uh, really wants to buy you dinner. <laughs> when this is over, uh, Katz's Deli is a fine place to take me, is all I'm saying. Done. <laughs> all right. Um, I want to talk about the process of writing a film because you wrote plays, you've written for television, um, yeah. you've done stand-up, you know, now film. You're one of the few other people I can talk to that have written in all the mediums. You know, what's what was that process like? The process of actualizing a full story over an hour and 40 minutes of time. Well, an interesting thing I found about um, working in film, because Green, Greenpoint Tavern is is one of the films that I've, that, that I've written. That's definitely the one that's sort of the front runner. The, the other projects, that, the other films that I've worked on, um, what I've learned is there's, there's, there's the script you write and then there's the script you rewrite every day on set for the duration of the shoot. There's, you know, there's, there's a need for flexibility and fluidity in, in the writing when you're working in film because you never know what the director or the actors are going to throw at you. And, um, you know, a lot of times I found working on sets when I, if I wasn't directing the project, if I was working with another director, is uh, I would have to modify pages almost on a daily basis. And God forbid you have an actor that has a bit of fame and a bit of an ego, they also have reams of notes. So it's, it's, it's a really fluid process from your first draft to what the audience sees in terms of the writing. And it takes, I, it, it takes a Herculean amount of, 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 of patience because, man, they, they are messing with your baby. And there's, yeah. you know, you, you just got to kind of deal with it. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely, I think if you looked at the original draft of Greenpoint Tavern, as opposed to the film that you saw, lot, the ending was very different. A lot of scenes were very different originally. And mm -hmm. so some of the modifications I was really happy with, I was really surprised with. And some, some of the modifications to this day I find myself bawling my fists with, you know, what, uh, what came out and what might've been, but I think it's, it's, it takes a different type of patience, I think, to write film than it does writing half hour TV or commercials or, uh, you know, or, or, or a shtick for a video game, you know, it's, depends. So it, it, moving towards wrapping this up, what advice would you give to a young stand-up that wants to get into this and just starting out, trying to find his own voice? What, what sage wisdom do you have for them? <laughs> give me your wisdom. <laughs> I would say that, uh, I would say that the, um, be patient with yourself. Um, I, I think a lot of times, especially when people start writing and they, they get really, uh, obsessed with knocking out 20 pages a day or 15 pages a day or whatnot. And I think if you, if you're able to write two or three honest pages a day, I think it's a lot better than knocking out 20 pages of garbage. I see this with a lot of young writers too. I mean, they can knock out 20 pages a day. None of it's good, but they can knock out 20 pages a day. And I think, uh, 
I think it takes, writing takes time, it takes patience, and it takes an ability, it's a craft as well as a, a job. And I think, um, I think it's important to be able to take your time. And, and, and I think uh, you can't rush good writing. I mean, I, I think rushing is the death of good writing. Yeah. All right. So then, final thing. Yeah. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever gotten from another stand-up about the art of comedy? Um, gosh, I would, I would, there's uh, Rick Chrome was always an oracle of great advice um, in terms of, uh, in, in terms of comedy and honestly the best advice that he gave, which kind of brings this whole thing full circle is one of the biggest pieces of advice is Rick gave me the first year I was doing comedy was listen, listen, listen. And to, to this, to this day, it's the most important thing. All right. So what's next for you? What are you working on? Where can people find you? <laughs> well, uh, people can find me at geezer Lynch at Instagram, uh, mm -hmm. or they can find me at Sean Lynch comedy on Twitter. And, uh, I'll be headlining the, uh, the funny stop in, uh, in, in Ohio, uh, next weekend's. Uh, the 28th, 29th, and 30th. And uh, I'm working on a, a horror movie for Netflix right now called Winter Island. So it's uh, trying trying in this pandemic to stay busy. Doing yep. Yeah, and, well, we all, we all get that. And you have a gig in the middle of the pandemic, so that's an amazing thing to begin with. <laughs> it was great knowing you, Jim. Yeah, and, and I will say kind words. But you could have just told me you didn't want to buy me the sandwich of cats. It would have been fine. You didn't have to die for it. Uh. If you could play Candle in the Wind on a bagpipe at my funeral, it would mean the world. I was going to do it on the spoons, but I'll move to the bagpipe. <laughs> Sean, thanks for being part of the podcast. Uh, yeah. We will, uh, we will, I'm sure we will have another chat again in the future. But, Absolutely. Uh, until then, have a great day. All right, bye, everybody. Well, that was a fascinating conversation, and I had a lot of fun talking to Sean. Uh, he is going to have to buy me lunch at Katz's when he gets back to New York. But as you heard him say, it's about patience. It's about listening. And it's about putting in the actual work that you need to do to make the good things great. So until the next Comedy Legacy podcast, I'm Jim Andrinos. Thank you from all of us here at NMC Studios to all of you guys listening at home. Goodbye, everybody. This has been a new Media Comedy Worldwide production.